All right, so we are in a condensed version of uh, our study of two ways to live as an evangelism tool. So last week, uh, Mercury and myself um, kind of walked through an overview of this, of this tool, this evangelism tool called Two Ways to Live. Um, and so we kind of did the first three parts of this, of this booklet and really stated that it's not really meant to be a verbatim tool for evangelism, but I think what it does is it provides us with a framework as to how we can focus conversations with coworkers, with friends, with neighbors around the gospel message. You know, and, and every conversation will probably look different than, than the next one. So last week, Mercury kind of walked us through saying one of the first points we, we start with is clarifying who God is. You know, so on the first page of Two Ways to Live, it says that God is the loving ruler of the world. And, and we want to explain to our, our hearer, our audience, that he made the world and he made us rulers of the world under him. Was there a question, Greg? No. Okay. Um, and then it, it continues on to, to note that by our sin, because of our sinful nature, we all reject the ruler, God. And the way we reject him is we try to make ourselves God in his place. We try to be sovereign over our lives and we try to run our lives in the way we want without his law and his constraints and restraints on us. Um, and then page, the, the next point is that God won't let us rebel forever and that as all criminals, those who violate law, there is a punishment for our sin. And so, so as the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death, right? That's, what, that's the judgment that we get. So again, we're, we're sort of in a condensed version uh, of this topic since we're smaller in group today. But what we want to do is continue on this focus on the, the rest of this, which starts on, on the the fourth page where it says that because of his love, God sent his son into the world, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus always lived under God's rule, yet by dying in our place, he took our punishment and brought forgiveness. Okay, so, so th this is again just, just a reminder, a framework to help clarify first the problem that we face and the solution being Jesus Christ. Right? So you can kind of see this as you're having conversations with folks, laying out the problem, laying out the, the origin of all of life, laying out what happened, that you know, this, this state of the world didn't just come from nowhere. And then get into this, this penalty that we all de deserve because of our sin. And that ultimately the solution to this sin problem is Jesus Christ. Okay? So laying out the gospel. And then the next page in Two Ways to Live says, gives more of the good news that not only did Jesus die for our sins, uh, but God, in accepting his payment, that, in, in accepting the perfect work of his sacrifice, God raised him from the dead to show that he has now conquered death and now gives life to everyone who will trust in him and, trust in him and, and he will one day come back and judge. And that takes us to the final point in Two Ways to Live, which 
essentially lays it out to the hearer, okay? It, 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 it doesn't leave us just passive to the message of the gospel. It, it's a call to action. It's either one of two ways to live. Our way, which is continue to live in rebellion against God, continue to reject him as ruler, or trying a new way, God's way, which is to submit to Jesus Christ as our ruler, and the result of this being that we're forgiven by God and given eternal life, okay? So that's a quick snapshot, condensed overview of the entire framework of, of two ways to live. Um, so before we get into this more specifically and, and, and kind of a different approach on what we want to talk about tonight, uh, any questions on that? Does this seem pretty practical and useful for kind of walking someone through the gospel? Absolutely. More because it gives the person that your audience an actual kind of frame reference to go back and make sure nobody's making it up. Mm -hmm. And two, I think it also kind of adds a little more weight to it and helps you carry through from the beginning to the end. Excellent. Excellent. Great point, Grant. Okay, so, so with that, I think one of the things we did last week, speaking of scripture, um, there, there are a couple of key scriptures that I, that I thought were really helpful for us to touch on last week. And um, one of them was First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, and Grant, I'm going to ask if you could turn there. And then the other one I think that was quite helpful to talk about was Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. And Gretchen, if you wouldn't mind getting that. So whenever you're ready, um, First Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, to 16 actually. Amen. And so I think we talked about it last week, but was there any particular word that jumped out to you? Was there anything in particular about Peter's exhortation in this scripture about evangelism? Right. Because of their other sin, recognizing that we're one all sinners. Right. And two, I think the majority of us receive the gospel at a young age from parents or uh, church, and it was all done in a gentle, gentle manner and one that was given to us at our, at our current Amen. level. Excellent. Excellent. I think another word is reason. Mm hmm. Excellent. So always give a, give a reason, right? So, so that ties into the next verse in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. And Gretchen, you have that? So it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made as white as snow. Though they are red like 
So, so already in two verses, you know, we, we've seen this importance of giving people argument, giving people understanding, persuading people, right? So we see that God, though vast in, in wisdom and knowledge, containing all wisdom and knowledge, because he made all wisdom and knowledge, God reasons with those who don't know, who don't understand. And so I think that's, that should be our posture right away as we go into evangelism, is being prepared, as Peter prescribes, to give a reason for what? For the gospel, for the hope that is in us, right? And so, so with that, I'd like to kind of take a different approach, similar to how we did last week, but maybe just kind of going back to this theme of evangelism with Max Stiles and, and Mike McKinley, uh, the sermons that they laid out about some of the practical tools for evangelism, okay? Um, and going back to the, the sermon preached by Mike McKinley about some of the reasons that we fear or, or choose not to evangelize or share, share this hope. What are some of those reasons either, either you know of that you experienced or that were talked about in that sermon? Fear of man. Okay. Fear of man. Okay, what else? So we know fear of man, fear of their opinion, fear of being judged, probably in terms of intelligence. What else might someone be nervous to share the gospel with their faith? Feeling as though you don't know the Bible well enough. Feeling ill-equipped. So I think this is one of the most major ones that presents a problem for gospel sharing, okay? So we feel under, underprepared, ill-equipped, or we have fear of men. And these two could be related. We fear because we feel ill-equipped. What else? What about being perceived as being judgmental? Right? How about judgmental? So... We can just call these the problems, okay? Problems affecting our evangelism. Any others that you've experienced or heard or, okay? Okay, so we can start with these three for now. Fear of man, being unprepared. But again, if you go back to that scripture in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 to 16, what is the first prescription to overcoming these issues or these problems? What is, what is Peter's prescription for this? Always be prepared to make a defense. Right? Preparation. Right? And I think that rings true with what Mike McKinley was saying too. He said, plan. Take small risks. You know, ultimately, as we read in, in our psalm in, in the appetizer before this, was recognizing that unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. So ultimately it's God who produces salvation. But in presenting the gospel, we use tools such as two ways to live or, or knowing the gospel and being prepared to tell the hope that is in us, right? And, and so this is kind of the reason for this focus on evangelism. And then so one of the things we talked about last week is that when you're in conversation, when you're using the gospel, when you're, when you're using a framework like two ways to live, what you're doing is you're persuading others to believe the truth. 
And, and so you're making reasonable arguments. And I sort of introduced this idea of, of tools of an argument situation or a persuasion situation. And we call that tools of rhetoric, right? It's kind of this Aristotelian, it originates from Aristotle, if you will, it's, or he's credited with these ideas of appealing to the reason or the character, right? Or, or the emotion, the, the emotion of the hearer. Often we're making cases for appealing to their God-given innate ability to understand, okay? And we call those logos, pathos, and ethos. Remember? And we said when you're making, when you're talking to someone, you know, it's not just like you're speaking into a vacuum here. These are people made in the image of God who have the capacity to understand as, as Romans talks about all the time. You know, it's, Romans talks about the fact that we were all born with conscience, right? Uh, our conscience either excusing or, or, or recognizing that we, we are either in sin or, or we, are, we are excused from our sin, right? So, so when we speak to people, we understand that we're, we're appealing, just as Peter talks about, either to the reason, so logos, speaking to reason, right? Pathos, emotion. Ethos, moral character. And so when I speak of moral character, you know, sometimes we make an, an argument saying that, you know, there's credibility here because the person delivering this, this persuasive argument has the credibility to speak to this, right? And so, so we look to the credibility, credibility of Christ. We make arguments based on the credibility of his word, of who God is. And at the same time, we speak to the reason of creation, the self-evident truths that exist in the world. And and we speak to our experience, our human experience. And so in the process of walking through two ways to live in the gospel, you see that in presenting the truth, all of this is tied up in there. Does that make sense? And then so, so you can already see that when we walk through the gospel in, in, in a very condensed form as, as, as we've done here, where we start with talking about the evidence about who God is, the creator of the universe, seeing the, the creation that he created. Psalm, you know, Psalm 19, where it says, the heavens declare the glories of God. Even our constitution speaks, takes that same approach of we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? So there's a self-evidentness about the world. And so we appeal to the reason. Remember, Peter, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. So we start there. And we move on to the fact that this world is broken. And so pathos, you see that in your human experience. You see that in heart pain. You see that in suffering, right? Are, are you seeing how this, this kind of is walking through? When you get to the next part where you're talking about the fact that this world is broken, that, that suffering exists because of man's rebellion to God, right? And, and we go on to talk about how God, as revealed in his word, 
cannot allow us to continue to rebel. And so judgment is coming. And the great news is that Jesus Christ, and we, we, we let people know about the truth of God's word here, that Jesus Christ being credible to stand in our place as our substitute for the sin that we deserve has paid it all. And so by trusting in him, we get eternal life. And so you see that we are actually persuading men with reasons. And in the gospel is, is the evidence, is this logos, pathos, ethos. It, it's all there in, in the gospel presentation. Any questions about that so far? Is that pretty clear? Okay. And then so moving from there, let's, let's try this other aspect to, to better prepare ourselves. So talking about the problems and then the approach in the solution being the gospel and the approach to sharing the gospel. What about objections that you typically receive, right? So we talked about problems. We talked about the solution in understanding that the gospel already contains evidence and, and a clear presentation of the gospel is to present a reason. But you're still going to get objections, right? What are some of the objections you've heard to the gospel? Just go ahead and list them. We'll call these objections. Okay, so relativism. Okay, what else? My faith is a private thing. Okay. Yeah, so, so I think we're still in this section of relativism. Okay, what else? And, and I think you can see that these objections are pretty tied to our problems, right? We've, we've kind of anticipated this fear of man, fearful that they're going to say, okay, don't, don't, don't put that on me, right? Just you, you keep your private religion and let me be to each his own, right? Objections to organized religion. Okay. Good, good. I think another example could be if someone's gone through a really hard thing, mm-hmm. not having, thinking God would be good mm-hmm. to do this to them. Okay. Um, another understanding. So doubts about God's character. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any others? What about the doubts about the credibility? Of the gospel. Like, yeah, why is the Bible true? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, doubts about truth. Okay, so, so these are some typical objections, right? I think a lot of this we talked about kind of relates to the fear of man, but, but just kind of looking at these objections. How would you characterize them? Are they objections based on logos, pathos, or ethos? So let's start with the first one, relativism. Someone saying, that's for you, that's private. 
pathos. So, so, so it's an argument based on emotion. Do you see why I did that there? Do you see why I asked that question? If you remember from last week, we said that whenever you're in a gospel conversation, whenever you're in a persuasion, persuasion situation, it's not just you who is presenting truth, right? It's not just you who's presenting a side, shall we say. You're persuading each other, okay? So whether you're, whether you're the hearer, the listener, or the speaker, when you, when you engage in conversation, either someone is going to acknowledge and, and share in your opinion, or they're gonna share a different persuasion, right? So, so you persuade each other. And we said that whenever you, whenever you hear uh, an argument, just as Paul has exhorted us to test the truths that we hear, right? Know that you need to be listening for, for the basis of this argument, right? Is it reason that's being presented to me? Is it truth? Is it my personal emotion? Or am I appealing to, to the character of something else, to the credibility of something else? And that's why I think it's so important to understand the, these tools of, of logos, pathos, and ethos. And so when someone presents an objection to me, I need to know how best to respond with the gospel and with truth. Is that making sense? Following me? So, so if someone came with a relative objection or re, a objection of relativism saying, you know, that's, that's private. And I, I immediately identify what type of objection I'm hearing. Is that based on fact or reason? The first one, we said it's based on emotion. Well, how would you respond to emotion? Would you respond with more emotion? With a more, em what would you present to them? Truth. You'd, pre you'd present reason and say, okay, I hear you. And you do it in a spirit of gentleness, just as Peter. Peter actually gives us a, a prescription, a course of action, if you will, as to how to handle objections, right? And so in presenting the gospel, we're listening and we're hearing, what am I hearing from this objector? And then what about organized religion? How would you listen for that? What would you call that type of response? Somewhat like more character or emotion. So when you say I'm against organized religion, I'm against organized religion, I've had bad experiences with that. What does that fit under? More emotion. More emotion, right? And again, I'm going to respond with the truth, right? I'm going to pull from the truth of Scripture to respond to, to this barrier of emotion, mm -hmm. right? What about doubts about God's character? What, what's going on there? If, it, if he's a good God. Right, so it could be a combination of their emotion and even, even logos, right? Their observation of the world, but through their paradigm, misinterpreting what's going on because they don't have the truth of the gospel. And so what do we do? We, 
we focus the conversation on the gospel. And just as it said in the second point in Two Ways to Live, we give them the reason. And the reason is what? Sin, right? Man's rebellion against God. So, so you, you practice this listening to objections, to misunderstandings about the gospel, and we focus in on the gospel. You with me? Is this helpful? Can you see how this, this practically applies to your conversations around the gospel? And so the, the final point I'd like to touch on, so we've covered the problems, right? And we've covered the fact that whenever you're in evangelism context, there, there's two sides, okay? There's two sides of persuasion happening. You are presenting the gospel, but you're also getting feedback. And so you know how to listen and identify what type of feedback you're getting, right? And then we talked about the, the objections and identifying what type of objections they are. Now, this, this might get a little technical, and I hope not too technical, but I want to center around this, this uh, idea of reason. So we, the emotional responses are typically easy to address, right? But, but there's, some other types of, um, there's some other types of objections that I think I've heard that center around reason, and it's kind of false teaching, right? We know that in Romans, the Bible talks about how it's not really reasons that make some people doubt God's existence or his character or who he says he is. It, it's unrighteousness, right? Remember in, in Romans, it talks about how men, because of their unrighteousness, suppress the truth of God. Does that sound familiar? So, so it's not necessarily the reasons out there that make people doubt who God is. It's not the lack of self-evident truths, right? Even, as I said earlier, even the Constitution of the United States will start out in, in its preamble saying, we hold these truths to be self-evident. So we, we have the empirical evidence for God. Now, I think what I've encountered sometimes when we're looking at this reason, these reasonable objections or these objections that purport to, to have reasons for opposing God and, and who he is, they will come to things like uh, a, a counter argument, like I believe in evolution. I think someone raised that up last week, right? Um, and, and I prefer science over religion. So, so let, me, let me mark this down here as number five, the uh, science versus faith objection. Okay, now this is gonna be very important. Remember earlier we talked about feeling ill-equipped. Would you say that this is one of the areas that you felt most equipped to address? Why is that? So that, I mean, clinically talk to a very primary or basic just uh, basic faith in medicine, that kind of thing. They have a lot of technical background or candidates that you explain that to that very hard to grasp. Right. Okay, okay. Any other thoughts about why we might feel ill-equipped to address an objection like that's faith, I believe in science? Why else might we feel ill-equipped? I mean, it's a big topic, mm -hmm. you know, how science supports our faith in God. And mm -hmm. It takes time to gain that understanding as mm -hmm. a believer, 
does, you know, relate and support mm-hmm. the existence of God. And so I think even, you know, we just watched that movie, um, Father's Journey History, and it, you know, you could see how individuals as believers spent time focusing on certain aspects of science mm-hmm. to prove the existence of God. Mm-hmm. You know, but in reality, we don't all have that ability to dive deep, and mm-hmm. so kind of getting a, a general understanding, but sometimes humans are limited that we don't have a deeper understanding, like Grant was saying, you know, when someone has a, you know, a lot of technical background in certain things. Excellent points, okay. So we don't know everything, basically, right? We don't know everything. We don't know everything about every discipline, every subject, but we do know some things, right? We know God's word, and in his word is contained truth, right? And what is science, first of all? What what does it mean? What's the the definition of science? It's truth, okay, right? Science is truth. And what is faith? Um, would, would someone turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1? The biblical definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hmm. Faith is the assurance, it's the assurance of, things for. of things hoped for. So I know some translations, instead of the word assurance, it means the same thing, would say faith is the confidence, right? So so faith is confidence. Confidence in what? Right. So so the gospel, the, the truth of the gospel, right? So, faith is confidence. So we're confident, but is it it a blind faith? Does it have no basis whatsoever? What is it based on? It's based on the finished work of Christ. It's based on, again, we get back to this idea of reason. It's based on the evidence. So, So when we enter into a conversation and someone is thrown back a Logos objection, of that faith, I believe in science. Is there truly a distinction between these two? If we say science is truth and faith is confidence, what are we confident in? We're confident in truth. We're confident in the truth of God's word as self-evident in creation in the truth of who Jesus Christ is, in the truth of his word, this is where we place our faith, in him, right? It's not a childish faith, it's, it's a reasonable faith, okay? And so I'm gonna introduce again this idea that just to kind of help shore up our confidence when we're talking with, would say someone of the uh, scientific persuasion <laughs> that feels that they probably have more knowledge in this area than than someone else who, who is a Christian or a believer of the gospel, right? And it's, it's this idea of kind of the two camps of philosophy. Now, remember I said that whenever you're in a conversation around the gospel, there's two things going on. You're presenting a worldview and someone else is presenting another worldview, okay? 
you're presenting one explanation, another may be objecting to that explanation with an alternative or counter explanation. And we, we can call this generally philosophy. Okay? So we can call these generally philosophy. And another word for philosophy may be worldview. You see that? So if I'm presenting to you the way the world is, or my view of the world, I'm presenting to you a Christian philosophy. I'm presenting to you a philosophy or worldview that is informed by the word of God. Okay? Anything else is a worldly philosophy that is uninformed by the spirit of God, by the truth of his word. Does that make it sense? Now, if we were to get a little technical in terms of how philosophy is generally described, you could kind of describe it in two broad categories, okay? There's what's called speculative slash theoretical philosophy or worldview, okay? Or what's called normative philosophy or worldview. Right? In, in the latter one, you can sort of see this idea of norms or standards, right? So here, you're dealing with ethics, right? What should we do? What we ought to do? That's kind of the, the realm of normative philosophy, right? And then you also have what's called, within speculative philosophy, it, it purports to kind of tell you about the world, right? And this kind of sub breaks down into what's called metaphysics and so you got metaphysics and then you've got this idea of a, it's kind of a big word, epistemology. Okay? So, so that's kind of the broad camps of philosophy, right? You've got this speculative and you've got this normative philosophy. So this is kind of the realm, speculative philosophy, where most people are coming back with their, shall we say, logos arguments. They're coming back saying theories about either who God is or how the universe came into being in metaphysics or why we exist, or they're making arguments regarding knowledge or how we know truth. So metaphysics, if you look at this word here, kind of goes beyond physics, right? So when we say metaphysics, we're looking at things like existence, why we exist, our being. And when we say epistemology, we're saying knowledge, or how do we know truth? How does anyone find truth, okay? And so we're not going to touch on ethics, but clearly we can see how scripture addresses this point about what we ought to do. <laughs> Go ahead. Just kind of make sure I understand this well. Normative philosophy, would you, if you had to put it into those terms, because of the logos pathos or ethos, would you put that more in the pathos, or does that belong in that so, so, so that's a good question. So if I'm looking at normative philosophy, and if we're getting into conversations about 
what we ought to do, the assumption is that there's a moral code. So if I'm getting into a conversation with someone about, you know, why something is wrong, well, my first question to the objector of the gospel is, well, what is the source of good? Where, do you, where does your moral code come from, right? And so, so yes, it, it does pertain to this, this ethos argument, right? But it also pertains to, to logos. There's, often these are interplaying with each other. But, but the whole point of me listing out these two kind of broad categories of worldviews, right, of, of, of philosophy is to show that whether you're talking to uh, someone who's a scholar or scientist or we all have philosophies, right? We all have worldviews. There's no one walking around this world who does not have a worldview, okay? Because all you need to do is look out into the world and see how it is and come up with your explanation of why the world is the way it is, okay? And so, so it's important for me to understand what type of argument I'm hearing about metaphysics and what is the origin of, about arguments on existence, right? Now, what I wanted to focus on was this idea of knowledge. So, so to your question earlier, Gretchen, about if a PhD in a scientific area or whatever it may be, purports truths about, about the world, then they're purporting a philosophy, a worldview that's based on something. And often what is that based on? It's based on some way of capturing knowledge, of capturing data, right? And typically we'll call that the scientific method if you're looking from a scientist perspective, right? Now, whenever you arrive at science, does science ever have 100% certainty about its claims? Do you ever come to a scientific theorem or truth or law that is 100% certain? Okay. Okay, so that, that's a great point. It continues to be discovered. Or maybe another question, can science change? Okay, how so? They can discover new facts that would, that would alter their previous assumed conditions of whatever they were looking at. Right, so data, right, more data, more data leads to more information. Right? So, the information we had about biology or, or any, any area of even the natural sciences has changed over decades, okay, over centuries. Information is changed as, as more data becomes available. So this goes back to this argument of how the assumption that science trumps the word of God is, is a folly. Why? Because science is always changing, isn't it? Right? And if we say that you can't present science that's, that's 100% you know, locked and immutable, unable to be changed, that, that's, that's impossible. So, so then the question becomes this. If you're speaking to someone from a scientific standpoint, 
is there not an element of faith around science? Right? So, so when we get to this idea of presenting an epistemological worldview, you're also talking about faith. You're talking about confidence. Confidence in either experiments or experimentation or data or something. You're ultimately talking about faith. And we said in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is what? Confidence. And so, so the science that we believe is, is the science in the world that God has created and the truth, the science that he has revealed in his word. Now, having said all that, does that change your, shall we say, level of confidence in speaking to an objector based on this logos argument? Mm-hmm. And we've changed so much since then, and we've discovered so much since the 1800s, of course, thought, you know, based on you know the human genome and all those things. And and would people then believe that if they had known that then? Right. Based on this theory of evolution, probably not. Right. Or maybe, but a lot more people might not. And so having that argument of you know. Does science change? And oh, it does. And can you explain that then? Why you believe in such and such if they're getting that argument for Correct. evolution and that we we came in existence because you know we just happened to show up right. instead of being created by God? Right, right. You can ask those questions right. and have them speak and discover. Mm, actually, this is more of a faith thing that I believe in it rather than having full assurance. I have a question about your definition of science in mm-hmm. Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so this is just linguistics, right? Okay. It's just a simple linguistics, so Latin. So when we speak of, for example, conscience, as I've talked about before, if you break up the word, con means with, okay. science means okay. truth or knowledge. That's just the language origin of that word, right? So truth or knowledge is what we mean by science. Correct, correct. But but often what changes is our is is more information that we get that that either corrects uh, errors or interpretations or conclusions that we draw from the data that we had previously, right? And so I think you know. Not only does scripture call us to give a reason, but it also says to add to our faith knowledge. It, it, it calls us to be knowledgeable about the world that we live in. And so I think these frameworks are ways that we prepare to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Right? We always focus on the gospel because it's the gospel that saves. It is, it is God through us, through as his ambassadors calling men to repentance to be reconciled to God. You know, it says faith, faith in Christ comes by hearing 
and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, verse 17, okay? And so, so the whole point in, in listing out this philo- philosophical framework here is to remove this sort of illusion or intimidating barrier to engaging in conversation and get into the assumptions behind every philosophy, every nice-sounding teaching, because there's a lot of false teaching out there. And so just as we are called to test everything, it's helpful to test, well, what is the source of your confidence? If, if I'm getting a logo subjection, I, I need to un- unpack that a little bit and get to the root of that basis of the faith. Does that make sense? Any questions about this? About what's listed up here in terms of theoretical philosophy or normative philosophy? That's one thing I thought I'd like to reframe this was going back to the scripture. Mm-hmm. Look at like, there's truth unchanged mm-hmm. over, over thousands of years. It's stayed the same. It has not, it's, well, our Bible has not, has not changed to reflect the current times or to add new teachings to things that have been, you know, found. Um, well, I'm saying that, you know, science, you know, we have a limited understanding of, of the world mm-hmm. as time Right. I feel like that. No, I think that's absolutely true. I think that's that's part of the reason for looking to present the gospel. Um, the gospel will never change. The truth of God's remain the same, even as even as scientific evidence becomes more abundant and and it is God's truth. All truth is God's. You know, these these truths about about the nature of God, about the word of God, they're unchanging, you know, and that's why it's so helpful to make our rest, our logos, our reason on the basis of the gospel, right? And, and these frameworks are only tools to help us know how to persuade men to remove the distractions, as it were, that would block ears from hearing the truth about the gospel. Any final thoughts or confusions? Was, was that pretty clear? I know that's a lot to, to throw into one, uh, <laughs> one evening. College class, thank you. Okay, great, great. <laughs> All right, so with that, uh, let me pray for us and uh, we can be dismissed. Lord, we just thank you for your word and um, just as we begin this study tonight, as we look to your word, in Psalm 127, it says that unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Even with our knowledge and our, our understanding, we rely on you through your Holy Spirit, through your word, to effect salvation, Lord. So we pray that as we've gone through these tools that you've equipped us with, um, two ways to live, understanding about worldviews, about rhetoric, about how to listen and overcome objections with your word. Lord, we pray that we would ultimately place our confidence in our truth and our, and our faith in you. And that we would, we would take risks for your name, to glorify your name and call and draw all men to yourself. 
It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.